Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. This is an awesome passage. Let's pray as we commence. Father, open your word to us by your spirit now we pray. Teach us and may we see you as you truly are through the words of scripture in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 6 to uh, 1 to 8 is a passage for people in crisis or in the midst of change or uncertainty. Uh, In the year King Uzziah died, uh, represented for Israel uh, a considerable uncertainty about their future. He had been king for 52 years. He'd commenced as a 16-year-old as a co-regent. And uh, though he wasn't always a godly king, Uzziah, uh, in terms of Israel's peace and security and economic welfare, was probably the greatest king that they had had since Solomon. He was the ninth king of Judah. Toward the end of his reign, he became arrogant, he disobeyed God, he came under God's judgment, he was afflicted with leprosy. And now Uzziah dies. Assyria is on the rise. Many of Judah's people worship other gods and Uzziah is dead. In that year, Isaiah writes, I saw the Lord. And just implicit in that introduction is Isaiah, I think, saying that uh, when stability or continuity or peace is under threat, when what we've taken for granted or expected is no longer the case, uh, perhaps we need to see the one who doesn't die, who doesn't leave, who doesn't change. In the year Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the true king. I saw the one who actually holds us in his hand. So I don't know where uh, all of us are at tonight, but I find this vision incredibly important for anyone who is sensing change or uncertainty Uh, Because seeing the Lord, this vision, chapter 6 of Isaiah, it holds him for his ministry, uh, which is very difficult and quite long. And uh, this is what I think we come back to, uh, Isaiah 6, in terms of Hebrew scripture. And this vision of the Lord is really superb. Uh, I couldn't find an artwork, didn't really want to, that pictured the vision. Because there isn't anyone that does it justice. So I just found this of Isaiah looking and I'm inviting you tonight to either listen with eyes closed or imagine or certainly go home and sit with the scriptures in your own time and let the Holy Spirit open the text up because the words uh, and certainly my words will be inadequate uh, for the vision. I saw the Lord, 6, 1 to 4. I saw the Lord, the true king, the everlasting king, the one who will never leave us nor forsake us. My eyes have seen the Lord Almighty. And Isaiah sees the Lord 
uh, in the temple, uh, seated on a high and exalted throne. And he only remarks that God's robe fills the temple. He doesn't even try to describe God's essential being. I don't think you can. Uh, The essence of God is beyond description. But though we don't have insight into God's essence, we do have an understanding of God's immensity. God fills the temple. His robe fills the temple. His presence fills the temple. And Isaiah is struck by the immensity of God's presence. And this word fullness is really important throughout Scripture and very much so in New Testament letters. God fills the temple so much so that God's glory bursts out of it. It can't be constrained in the temple. And standing around the seated Lord are seraphim, burning, fiery angels. And one commentator says of them, that in Isaiah's description, they are all wings and voices. They are all wings and voices. Wings cover their face, wings cover their feet, wings fly, and they are all voices. They are echoing and calling and responding in this sort of antiphony and call and response around the temple saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth. Holy, 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 holy. And this is going around the temple and echoing. They are all wings and voices, perfect for praise and service. Their voices praise the Lord and their wings are ready to take them in service of the Holy One. These words are echoed and repeated in Revelation 4 in the throne vision that John gives us there. On this occasion, we have holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Revelation, what we have is holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. I actually think those two together are quite remarkable. We live in time and place. Uh, Our time is short. Our place at the moment is Springwood in Australia. And in Revelation, John sees the threefold Holy Lord filling time. He's in all times. He was and is and is to come. He's eternal and everlasting and unchanging. And so through history, through the present, into the future, the Lord fills. But here in Isaiah, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. He fills places. He fills time and place. He fills reality. Times and places are created goods in which we live and relate and our lives unfold. God fills our time. God fills our place. The whole earth is full of his glory, Isaiah says. 
And so bursting out of the temple, the glorious God fills the entire earth. This is the Holy One who is distinct and other and uncreated, but never absent or separate from his world. He is here. He is distinct, but he is present. He is immense and he is imminent. And the whole earth is full of his glory. He is so big and full and immeasurable that the glory of God bursts out of the temple and fills the world. One commentator has written, Holiness is the Lord's hidden glory. Glory is the Lord's omnipresent holiness. Take those two words home and think about them tonight. Think about them this week. Holiness is the Lord's hidden glory. Glory is the Lord's all-present holiness. And what Isaiah then has had a vision of is mind-blowing. The temple is rocking. He's possibly standing near a doorpost or an entry area and he notices that the doorways, the thresholds are shaking and then smoke, possibly a perfumed aroma of incense, fills the temple. It smells beautiful. It sounds beautiful. There's response and echo and glory and brightness and shaking and perfume. And how does he feel? Well, in 6.5 he says, Woe to me. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. He feels his own unworthiness. He uses the word ruined, which in other texts means I am cut down, I am undone, I am perishing, I am destroyed. He doesn't feel little, he feels unworthy. Uh, the message paraphrases 6.5 with the words doom. It's doomsday. I'm as good as dead. Every word I've ever spoken is tainted and blasphemous. And the people I live with talk in the same way, using words that corrupt and desecrate. And here I've looked God in the face, the God of the angel armies. I'm dead. He feels unworthy. And what happens next is wonderful because Isaiah doesn't ask anything from the Lord from the throne, pure grace and initiative. One of the seraphim flies to Isaiah with a piece of burning coal, perhaps from the altar of incense, and touches his lips with the coal and he says to him, this has touched your lips, your guilt is gone. You are clean, your sin is atoned for. The prophet is declared clean in the presence of the immense, holy, holy, holy Lord.
And in 6.8, for the first time, the Lord actually speaks. The Lord says from the throne where he is seated, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I think he's looking at the seraphim. Who will go for us, my heavenly friends? And none of them speak. And perhaps there's silence for a few moments. And then I imagine out of gratitude and wonder and love, the tiny, finite, very human and cleansed Isaiah sort of puts up his hand and says, I'm here, send me. And immediately the Lord says, go and tell. And he starts a ministry in the second half of chapter 6. This vision is the foundation for his ministry. And he's going to have a long and very difficult ministry. Tradition tells us that at the end of his life he was martyred. Uh, But whatever is the case, this vision holds him and it can hold us too as we go through times of change. Isaiah sees glory filling the world and I want to talk about glory now for a little while. Glory can mean um, and does mean brilliance and brightness and outshining the sort of effervescence of all that God is. Like the full strength of the sun on a bright day, when the heat and the light are everywhere and you go for a walk, uh, you are surrounded, you are indwelling, as it were, the glory of the sun. You don't need to touch or you can't touch its essence, but it is so immeasurably vast in the glory that outshines that when you go walking, you walk, as it were, in the glory of the shining sun. Its light and heat are everywhere. But the word glory in scripture also means weightiness and substance and value and worth. When we read a profound book or listen to a brilliant piece of music or hold a precious diamond or meet a person with deep wisdom, These are glorious, not because of the outshining, because of the inward weightiness, because of the value, the worth, the depth, the substance, the weightiness of that piece of music or that book or that mineral. John 17, which we heard a portion of tonight, has Jesus praying to the Father. And I love the way Jesus uses the language of glory. He says to the Father, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. I've shown people how profound you are, how weighty you are, how brilliant you are, because I've done what you told me to do. And then Jesus says, Father, Glorify me in your presence, get this, with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus became an incarnate carpenter of Nazareth. He became a, a veiled divine humanity. But he says here, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. 
Jesus is saying, Father, on the earth now, I've shown people how heavy you are. But before the creation, I lived with you in glory and we were heavy together. We were so glorious, eternally past. Take me back to that. And he's going to take humanity into that now. He's going to take his incarnated resurrection into that. He's going to take the crucified, resurrection, glorified one back into the glory that he always shared with the Father. Isaiah's just had a glimpse of the glory, the holy glory. Jesus lives in that glory, always has done and is now. And in John's Gospel, the most glorious thing about Jesus, the heaviest thing about Jesus, the deepest and most substantial, and we've got to work to get our mind around this, is his crucifixion. He takes an implement of torture, a cruel Roman torture tool, and he makes it his throne. In John's Gospel, when Jesus dies, he is most glorious. When Jesus loves us to the point of self-sacrifice, he's at his greatest. When Jesus is lifted up on the cross, John tells us he's actually being coronated. His cross is his throne. That's heavy. That's deep. The most substantial thing Jesus does is rule from a cross. Who could have imagined that? Who could have imagined that God, the Son, would be glorious in defeating the tyranny of sin and death and guilt forever? And that was visible, King of kings, King of Israel, in three languages as Jesus was crucified. Sometimes weightiness is surprising. We don't find it in those we might expect to find it in. We find it in suffering. We find it in self-giving love. We find it in moments of weakness. I was going to talk, call this sermon Living in the Glory because uh, I, I, I was thinking about you know this basking in the sunlight. But finally I, I thought, no, it's better to call it Living into the Glory and give us a motion, a direction in which to live. Sometimes the world does not seem glorious. Sometimes our lives do not seem glorious. Sometimes where there is strife and famine, war and violence, injustice and poverty and tragedy, it feels as though anything we might name as glorious has diminished and gone. Rather there is emptiness, hollowness, absence, and it just seems all empty. But here is God's invitation through Christ to you and I tonight. Here is God's challenge to us in our families, homes, neighbourhoods and workplaces and particularly during times 
of crisis. He is inviting us to live into the glory of God. And I want to suggest that there are four key ways in which we might do that. First of all, we can be and become glorious people. Because we are made in the image of the glorious God, you are not an empty self. You are, the Greek word for image, an icon. You are iconic. We are so often told in our consumer-driven society that we're poor, empty, fragile vessels and we need to fill ourselves up with more products and technology and money and travel and bigger houses and renewed kitchens and whatever it happens to be. You are glorious in yourself as an image bearer of God. Celebrate who you are. Now, of course, God's glory in you has been diminished because of our sinfulness, but God's commitment is to make you shine again and make you more weighty and profound than you've ever been, more glorious. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, we all with unveiled faces contemplating the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. As you gaze on the Lord... And as the Holy Spirit does his work, what does he want of you? He wants you to become shining and weighty and profound and wise. He's committed to making you more glorious than you've ever been. And that can happen every day in every part of our lives. Love what God's doing in you. And one of our prayers each morning, this word transformed in 2 Corinthians 3, this is a word about change. It's a word about renewal. It's about lifting. It's a word which says that as God does his work, by degrees of glory from the Spirit, you and I in Christ can become more glorious. Be and become glorious. The second one is this, discover God's glory in God's world. The psalmist knew the heavens declare the glory of God. The glory of God fills the earth. Go and find the glory of God in your workplace, in every area of creation. Discover it in art and music and science and astronomy and mathematics, and technology, and carpentry, and parenting, and education. Go and find the glorious beauty, goodness, and truth that is all around us. Stop skating across the surface of stuff, being too much of a rush to look and sit and listen. Slow down and go deeply into whatever it is that you do, studying, parenting, whatever hobbies and arts you love, find God's glory in them. Paul Tripp has written this, God intentionally placed us in a world that is jam-packed with glory, from trees to flowers to mountains, from mashed potatoes to steak to lemonade, from thunderstorms to sunsets to snowfalls. All of these things were designed by God to tingle our glory senses. 
But it is important, he continues, to understand that every created glory is meant by God to function as a spiritual GPS that points us to the only glory that will ever satisfy our hearts, the glory of God. We're living in a glorious reality. Go and discover it. Whatever you do, whatever you explore, whatever you love, look for the glory of God in that thing. Be and become, discover and then do. Do whatever you do to the glory of God. And like Jesus, show the world how great your God is. If you're a teacher, be a glorious teacher. If you're a builder, be a glorious builder. If you're a neighbour, be a glorious neighbour. Colossians 3, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God. There is nothing trivial about our lives. God invests his glory in every part, our words, our deeds, our relationships. I was thinking as I wrote this about Eric Liddell and Chariots of Fire. He won gold running the 1924 Paris Olympics and his wonderful and abiding declaration was, God made me for a purpose. God made me to run fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. When I run, I feel his pleasure. Go and find God's glory and do God's glory. Make it, sing it, tell it, build it, plant it, sow it, grow it, think it, work it, run it. Do what you do to the glory of God and live in this wondrous responsibility to let the world see that your God is heavy. Be and become it. Discover it. Do it. And the final one, and uh, an awesome one, is look forward to it. Expect it in the future. Because Scripture spends quite a lot of time and a lot of passages on saying that there is glory to be revealed to us that we haven't yet experienced. In 2 Corinthians 4, Uh, Paul is thinking about suffering and weakness and it changes the way he embraces the present when he thinks about glory. He says, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed every day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So fix your eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. Now, Paul is not minimising suffering. Of all people, Paul suffered. He knew about suffering. He was nearly beaten to death many times, drowned, etc., and at the end of his life, martyred. Paul is not saying suffering is trivial. He's not saying that we just carry it lightly. He carried it all of his life. But he is saying that when you think about your present and your suffering 
in the light of the glory to come, the weightiness to be revealed, it changes the way you will experience suffering. Paul lives in this age in the light of the age to come. Paul is absolutely convinced that somehow our troubles now are achieving for us a weighty glory to come. So be it, become it, discover it, do it and wait for it. Expect it. Just as the Lord said, or questioned and said, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Jesus, in John 20, says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. I thought it would be fitting tonight, in the light of this vision, to finish with an opportunity for you to say again to the Lord, here am I, send me. In the quietness of your own hearts, as we pray, Perhaps you haven't been willing to be sent by God for a while. Perhaps you've never been willing. Perhaps tonight is a new beginning. But like Isaiah, having seen something of the holy, holy, holy one who is glorious, perhaps tonight is a chance for you to respond to Jesus. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And to respond as Isaiah did when he saw God's vision, here am I, send me. So let's pray. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. Jesus, you came among us from a place of glory and you have returned as a resurrected human to that place of glory. As the Father sent you, you have told your disciples that you would send us into the world, here in Springwood, in the Blue Mountains neighbourhoods and towns, into workplaces and schools, into families and neighbourhoods. You are sending us, some of us to other countries and nations and other peoples and tribes and languages. But tonight, in full view of this vision, uh, we would say to you again, if we choose to do so now, just in our own hearts, Lord, here am I, send me. And Lord, as a community, as a corporate church, as a group of people on behalf of the church, I would want to say, Lord, here are, here are we. Send us. Send Alive at Five into the streets and the neighbourhoods and the relationships and the ministry opportunities and the conversations, the cafes and the hotels around this place and speak through us and work through us to your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.